You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 11, but before we do that, um, would you please stand and can we pray together? Our Father in heaven, we um, acknowledge today, this evening, that um, our souls are constantly in need of rest. And we look to a lot of places to find rest. Uh, Many have moved to this city, um, not in search for rest, obviously, but in search of finding ourselves or making ourselves. And in the process, we've lost a sense of ourselves. We've become human doings, and we pray that you'd help us to recover our humanity. Uh, We pray that you'd show us what real rest for our soul means and looks like, and uh, that we we would become human beings. And uh, we know that that is your desire for us, and we know that there's several people who are here that have never stepped foot in a church, or they're not quite sure of, you know, the surroundings, and, and we're just thankful for them, and we recognize it takes a lot of courage to come into a new place like this. And so we welcome them, and we pray that you would minister to them. We pray that you would minister to our souls collectively, and we pray this together as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can be seated. Matthew chapter 11, and I'll be reading from verses 28 through 30. Jesus speaking says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Not long ago, um, I had lunch with a pastor who's local in Boston. I'm thankful for the pastor's that are there in Boston. There's not a lot of us, and so when we get together, um, we have a camaraderie. We realize our need for one another there in the city. And uh, the day after we had lunch, uh, I was working, I was at home, um, I was preparing a sermon, probably on rest, but stressing out. And um, as I was preparing the sermon, I got a text from him. He's a pastor in Cambridge, and he said this in his text. He said, I was praying for you, And as I was praying this morning, I believe that the Lord wanted me to speak a few things to you. I believe that you're about to enter into and experience a season of rest and shalom peace like you've never experienced before. It's coming for you. God has seen your faithfulness, and now he wants to show you his. Now that text dropped me to my knees. I mean, I just wanted to get on my knees, pulled out a little pillow there and I'm not you know big on (laughs) all of a sudden getting down to my knees but this sent me to cry out to God like a 
a literal cry, a chest-heaving <gasps> cry, tears on the hardwood floor. And I think as I was thinking about why that was, why it made me so emotional, I think it, it was for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it was because I realized how much unrest I tend to live under. How much I need rest for my soul. How thin my soul can become. You know, there's a lot of ways that we can find, uh, you know, physical rest. But there's few ways that we can find rest for our soul. The second reason why I think it sent me to a place of crying out to God was because just the idea, the thought that God would actually care. Maybe he is there. Maybe he does care enough to really want to give me rest, shalom, peace, soul rest. What if you got that text right now? Judging by the looks of you, some of you are getting that text maybe right now. I see the phone's whipped out. Maybe it's that important. I don't know. Well, um, hopefully, you're getting a text like that. Somebody saying, I want you to know I've been praying for you. And I think that God wants me to tell you a couple things. I think that you're about to enter into a season of shalom, rest, peace, like you've never known before is coming for you. God has seen your faithfulness and now he wants to show you his. How would you respond? I think that we're not too unlike one another and I think that you would respond favorably. I think that you want that. I got a hunch that you need that. I think that our culture desires that. I think that as we look at our generation, it's been said that our generation is among the most stressed out and anxiety-ridden culture that ever has been. I mean, we live in a culture that resources, technological sources are so readily available to alleviate stress, and yet physicians say that more illnesses are exacerbated by stress and anxiety than any other factor. Um, one survey that was done by Slate.com uh, journalist Taylor Clark had surveyed over 200,000 college students at UCLA. And in this survey, titled American Anxiety, It's Not the Job Market, he s cites a jaw-dropping statistic that the average high school student has more stress or the same level of anxiety as the average psychiat psychiatric patient in the 1950s. And he cites three reasons for that. One reason is a lack of community or an increased isolation as a result of lack of community, human connectivity and touch. The other reason for that is information overload, a constant connectedness to work or email or social media or seeing the way life ought to be. And then the third reason that he cites is um, our collective intolerance toward pain or suffering or negative feelings that most of us feel like life should be a certain way. So apparently the notion that we shouldn't be anxious is actually creating more anxiety and stress in our lives. It's part of the reason why for a moment, although it's a great tool, I personally had to get off of <laughs> Instagram. As I was there in the Boston winter, my first ever looking at all my friends in the California sun, loving their life. 
And I'm thinking, gosh, why is my life this way? Why am I struggling so badly with depression? One woman who, uh, her name is Pamela Petler, she wrote a book called The Joy of Stress. She actually comes up with a a diet that can help alleviate our stress. It's a 24-hour diet, which is my favorite kind. means it's doable. And she says, for breakfast, this is part of the diet. You eat a half grapefruit, one piece of whole wheat toast, eight ounces of skim milk. Then for lunch, four ounces of lean broiled chicken breast, one cup of steamed zucchini, one Oreo cookie, one herb tea. Then for the mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the package of Oreo cookies. (laughs) One quart of Rocky Road ice cream, one jar of hot fudge taken from the fridge. And then for dinner, it gets even better, two loaves of garlic bread smothered in butter, one large mushroom and pepperoni pizza, one large pitcher of root beer, take away the root if you need to, Three Milky Ways and one entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly. It has to be eaten directly from the freezer. (laughs) And we chuckle because um, we understand what it is to medicate ourselves to find rest. Whether it's through food or through some other substance or through uh, uh, therapy shopping. But Jesus gives us an invitation into a life of deep soul rest that doesn't require medicinal use in the the ways that we tend to find it. He says there are a few ways that we need to find rest. Like any good invitation, this one provides us with a few important details. This invitation. And we'll break this invitation down into four categories. The narrowness of this invitation, our need for it, the nature of it, and the power behind it. So first we'll look at the narrowness of it. Why is it narrow? Well, it's narrow because you can't just go anywhere or be anyone to receive this rest. Have you ever noticed how how, how our invitations tend to uh, reflect who we are? We take a great deal of care before we send out an invitation. Most of us do. So we say to ourselves, uh, I want an invitation that's artistic yet shows my sophisticated side, kind of minimalist, not too ver- overtly hipster, mid-century meets postmodern. Uh, I'll just find it on Etsy, Evite, whatever it might be. The invitation that Jesus gives says a lot about who he is. He says in three simple words, If anyone needs rest, come to me. Jesus gives this invitation with these few words that say something about this complexity of his humanity and his divinity. He doesn't say, if anyone is weary or burdened, come to church. Although that's a good thing. He doesn't say, if anyone's weary, come to religion or come to the Holy Land or take a vacation or take a nap or take a pillow. He says, if anyone is weary, the best thing, even though those things can be good things, the best thing, the place of rest is found where I am. 
come to me. There's no neutrality here with Jesus. Jesus explodes this idea that all religions are alike. All religions are headed in the same direction. That Christianity is true, but it's not different. It's just a lot like other religions of the world. Jesus doesn't say, if anyone's weary, come to the five pillars. If anyone's weary, follow my eightfold path of enlightenment. Jesus says to you, if your soul is weary tonight, come to me. It's an invitation that's very narrow. In fact, in verse 20 through 24, it's so narrow that he makes himself judge. It says in verse 20, then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. He says to them, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, turned around, back to me in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, two uh, very industrial cities, than it will be for you on the day of judgment. Chorazin was a religious town, known for their morality. Then he says in verse 23, and you, Capernaum, also known for their morality or their religion, you, will, will you really be exalted to heaven? I know that's what you think, but I tell you, you will go down to Hades or to the place of the dead. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom a city known as being very immoral and uh, lacking religion, it's going to be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you because you've been with me, you've seen my miracles, you're aware of who I am, and now you're accountable. He calls himself the judge. Makes himself even more narrow when he essentially puts himself in the place of sovereign. Verse 27, he says, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. Could it be that Jesus is so narrowly giving this invitation to rest that He's actually saying, you can't even know God unless I give you an ability to understand who He is, who I am. When you see me, you see the Father. I and the Father are one. It explodes our understanding because the modern mindset of religion objects to this. This is offensive language in Jesus' day and it's offensive language in our day because these are not the typical words of a guru or a preacher. He doesn't say, if you need rest, follow my teaching. If you need rest, go to the synagogue. He says, if you really want to find rest, come to me. And that simply explodes our understanding of who Jesus is. The saying that for most modern people, Christianity is not necessarily untrue, it's just one religion religion among many, is simply factually not true. What Jesus is saying is that religious, listen, religious tolerance is impossible. 
we must practice social tolerance. We must practice judicial tolerance. And more than just tolerance, the Christian faith actually doesn't just teach civility, it teaches love. Think of the Christian ethic of loving your enemy, of doing good to those who hurt you or hate you. The Christian ethic of turning your cheek when someone spites you. Would that make for a great civilization? Absolutely, that's the essence of civility. It's more than tolerance. It goes beyond the extra mile, giving your cloak when someone asks you for your coat and giving your tunic, that whole thing. The Christian faith is not the only ethic for civility, but it's a great ethic for civility. And it actually teaches love. But what Jesus is saying is religious tolerance It's laughable when you actually talk to somebody who knows anything about about the religious teachings. To the three major faiths, Islam, Judaism, or Christianity, it's just impossible. You can't agree on all the facts, but we should be and practice uh, social, relational, and judicial tolerance. But Jesus says, real rest can only be found where I am. If anyone is tired, or weary, or burnt out, come to me. It's very narrow, and yet, it's very broad. Look at the next words he says in verse 28. Come to me, who's invited? All who are weary and tired. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. And Eugene Peterson says it really well like this. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's the narrow and yet broad way of the invitation. So what's the need for it? Because a lot of us would say, I get it. Jesus, he would naturally say that he's the way. You're a preacher. You're naturally going to say that Jesus is the way. So why should I take this rest from Jesus? Why should I come to Jesus? I think that we understand our need best for it when we understand his next phrase in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. (laughs) I would bet that most of us in this room have not used the word yoke in the past two weeks. Because this is not the same type of yoke. It's spelt differently than egg yolk. For all my vegan friends, there's no dairy involved in this yoke at all. Matter of fact, in Boston, we don't even know what a vegan is. Um, We actually don't know what a salad is either. So it's very good to be back in your city, feel myself becoming more healthy by the moment. He says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. Now to the first century audience, this is a very intriguing invitation and kind of counterintuitive because what he tells them for the way of rest, our need for it, is not come to me and take a vacation. He actually says, come to me and take a different form of work. Take my yoke on you. Now, this has a physical meaning as well as a spiritual meaning. 
The physical meaning to the first century audience was plain and simple. They knew what a yoke was. A yoke was uh, a, a wooden harness or a collar that you would connect two oxen, ox, ox, oxes with. <laughs> you would connect two oxen, ox with Boston, smartest city in America. Trust me. That's why it's crazy that I got sent there. You would connect two oxen with, and this yoke would be connected to one older, larger ox to a younger, smaller ox. And as the yoke is placed upon the neck, the harness, as they're walking through, you can see another photo here, the younger ox learns the rhythm of work, the way of life, and the path to walk from the older, more experienced ox. So when Jesus says, take my yoke on you, they immediately know what it, what it is. As a side note, think about how physical this is. Jesus, his teaching doesn't divorce the physical from the spiritual, the secular from the sacred. Jesus comes into their world. He's from a town called Nazareth. He worked a job for some 30 years as a carpenter with his hands. And he says, take my yoke on you. That's real rest. Now it's intriguing to them. Because what Jesus is not saying is that rest is not particularly found only in the absence of work. Right? We would tend to think that rest means, oh, I know what that means, take a vacation. Don't work. Jesus actually says, take my yoke. I want you to work in a different way. When God created man, he created him, created him on day number six. And he created him and he said, I want you to be fruitful, work, and multiply. Be creative, cultivate the land, work the field, use your imagination, dream dreams, work for greatness. Our problem is that we've redefined what greatness truly is. So that we abuse work. And we don't work from a place of rest. We work in order to rest. You know, everybody's working for the weekend. And so we, we work for the weekend. And we work in order to find rest. And we're working in order from a place of complete exhaustion. Why? Because God made man on day six. And the first full day that man spent with God was day seven, which was a day of what? Rest. The first day that God wanted man to spend with him was a day of rest, a day of renewal, a day of relationship, a day of side-by-sideness. Walk with me in the garden, Adam. Walk with my yoke. I want to talk with you. I want you to experience rest. But to the first century audience, this doesn't only have a physical meaning. I love that physical meaning. It's very salt of the earth. Jesus is very dust of the field. He's a, he's a worker. He understands the culture and the community. But they knew it to mean something much deeper. They knew it to mean not only physical in meaning, but spiritual in meaning. See, for the Jewish context in the first century, the listeners would have been familiar with this spiritual meaning. Because for the 
Orthodox Jew, the yoke represented, listen, the yoke represented the Mishnah, the rules and the, 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 the rules that, that, were, that summarized the Jewish law, the 613 plus Jewish rules that they said, this is how real spirituality is found, how you work in order to get to God. And for the Orthodox Jew, religion was a thing of burden, yoke, heaviness. That's why to religious Jew, Jesus says in Matthew 23 verse 4, you tie up heavy burdens that are too hard to carry and you put them on people's shoulders. You tie up heavy yokes and you put them on people's shoulders. But you yourself are not willing to lift a finger to help them. You talk about the poor, but you don't help your neighbor. You talk about serving the common good, but you don't serve the common person next to you in the cubicle. You talk about being a really moral person, but you're so unrested. To the first century Jew, spiritually speaking, the yoke represented moralism. Now some of you are saying, let's see, I, I don't really take any yokes on me. That's the thing. That's why I don't get with the Christian faith because I don't take a yoke on me. Friend, don't you see that the reason why you need it is because you will take a yoke upon you. You already have a yoke on you. That's why you feel the need to be beautiful or to be more beautiful, to be more successful, to be more valued, to be more needed. And that's why you put in more time and more effort, and more energy, and more worry, and more anxiety, because you are already yoked to something. And Jesus says, I'm not asking you to come and take, just take up a new yoke. I'm saying trade the old one in for mine. You see, the yoke represented, or there's two ways to take that yoke on you, as we said through moralism or through relativism. Our, our best stories in modern culture, some of the best TV shows, or at least some of my favorite, uh, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, House of Cards, it's a whole new genre. It's the anti-hero who's working hard to spin his persona to the public, to create a new reality, a new meaning for himself, and so he overworks, overspins, oversells himself because he's creating some persona. He is yoked to something. Think about uh, Walter White. I think it was in season one of Breaking Bad. One of my favorite scenes. Um, he's there with Jesse, his kind of younger cohort. They're stuck in their white trash RV cooking meth. We all been there. And there's... They're stuck, in, they're stuck in, uh, in, a, in the desert, and it's a moment of, of clarity for Walter White, and he comes to his senses. They think that they're about to die, and he's, they're, they're out of gas. They can't get back. They're stuck in the desert, no water, no food, and he says to Jesse, almost in tears, he says, all of the lies. I can't even keep up with all the lies anymore, the lies to my family, the lies to my coworkers, the lies to my friends. 
I can't keep up with all the lies and I'm just so tired. It's the yoke that Frederick Nietzsche calls the ubermensch. The ubermensch to Nietzsche was his answer to the problem of nihilism. Of course, he didn't turn to God and didn't believe that there was God. He believed that God himself was dead. But he believed that objective morality and inherent value are not possible since there's no uh, being that, creates, that's, that exists to create it. So therefore, it's our job to create ultimate meaning, ultimate value. So Nietzsche's ubermensch, Superman, which is by the way, where the, uh, the whole narrative of Superman originated from. Superman began as a bad, man, bad guy, by the way. Fun fact, that's free. The Ubermensch is neither a slave or master as he does not impose his will on others. So the Ubermensch would say that the meaning of life is that you die, so make it valuable now. I would say a lot of people move to Boston or to San Francisco not to find rest, but to find themselves or to make themselves, or make something of themselves. That's our desire, to become great. But we've redefined the term of greatness. And so therefore, we walk through our cities, and we move and we work in search for greatness or for great things to happen because we need to be uber-humans. Each profession has this idea of what an uber-human is and looks like. We all have this sense of uber-human. It's both our salvation and our prison. It's our prison because it's the ceaseless striving to become someone that we can never be. So in LA, which I was there last week, it's the constant strive to look a certain way so that you can land a certain job. In San Francisco, it might look a certain, in a, a, a way that's different. In Boston, it might look a way that's different, or New York. But we all have, our city creates this essence of what an uber-human is. Our profession creates this essence of what an uber-human is. And our culture and our media creates the essence of what an uber-human is. And that's why we work late nights. And that's why we neglect our families. And that's why our relationships are tethered, tenuous. And that's why our souls are worn very thin. It's this vision of greatness. It's this vision of always needing to be on top. Of always needing to win. And maybe God is just saying, I want to teach you how to lose. That's scary to us. But Jesus says, if you want to find your life, come to me. You got to lose it for my sake to really find it. I made you. What Jesus' invitation is to us here is this. Jesus says, so what if I am really the Messiah? What if I really did make you and all you were supposed to be? What if I really know how you work best, how your sexuality works best, how your soul works best? What if... I really am the one who can give you rest for your soul. If it's true, then you shouldn't ask the question, do I have a yoke? The question is, will you take my yoke on you?
Come to me if you're weary or burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. You see, I have this iPhone. I have this phone, sorry. Um, And there's parts of it that if it becomes corrupted internally, I can do all sorts of things to try to spruce it up, right? I can put a cover on it. I can make, put one of those really fancy cameras on it. I wish I knew the name. I'd sound a lot smarter right now. I can put, I can put, I can bedazzle it. I can do all sorts of things to it. But if the operating system is wrong, then no matter how I dress up the exterior or what new attachments or what new apps I try to download, if the operating system is malfunctioned, it needs a new, mal- it needs a new operating system. And what Jesus says is, I made you. I know how you operate. I want to give you real rest. So take my yoke on you. See, the Palestinian yoke was made for oxen, and the way that it was made is the ox would come to the, uh, the carpenter, and it would be fitted for its yoke. The carpenter would put the piece of wood on its neck, and then it would fit it, take its measurements, and take it back to the drawing board, back to the machinery, carve it, and bring it back so that the yoke wouldn't carve uh, uh, grooves or, or injure of the oxen. And as they come back to the ox, they're saying, I know how to fit this yoke best on you so that you work best. Your rhythms of life are more, are, it's more fruitful. Your work is more fruitful. Your soul finds rest. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I know how you work best. What if I really do? What if I really know how to give you real rest? It's an invitation for us that Eugene Peterson says like this. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. So what's the nature of this rest? The nature is found in verse 29. Jesus says, when you take my yoke on you, there's a couple of things that will begin to happen. This is how you'll know that you have my yoke beginning to wear on you. He says, my yoke, take my yoke on you because I am meek. Some of your translations say gentle. I would be willing to bet that most of us haven't used the word meek in the past couple of weeks. One commentator says that the word meek means freedom from pretentiousness. The freedom to not feel the need to spin your persona any longer. The freedom to not feel the need to have to make a showing to others any longer. And that is, revisiting those shows, the essence of what the uber-human is doing. I need to wear a different yoke in order to spin this persona. He says, when you take my yoke, you'll become more meek. Secondly, he says, when you take my yoke, or you should take my yoke, because I am also humble, and you'll find rest for your soul. Humility. It's a thing that's so difficult, isn't it? 
Because as C.S. Lewis says, when we walk into a room, we tend to look around and we walk through the door and we say to everyone else in our minds, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we say, what can you offer me? Your life for mine. And humility says, and Jesus is saying, the essence of taking my yoke is you walk in and you say, my life for yours. And you say, we tend to walk in and we say, this is the grand narrative of the story of my life. I'm the central character and everyone else in this room is the poor supporting cast. But when you walk into the room and you take Jesus' yoke upon you, you begin to say, how can I serve you? How can I love you? My yoke is easy, he says. You won't feel the need to always have to be on top to be the winner. My load is light. And the way to find rest for your soul is to take my yoke and learn that it's okay. The way up is actually down. The way to win is through the cross. And that's lastly, the power behind it. The cross. Jesus says that there's three ways that we enter into this power. First is obvious. We already mentioned it. Come to me. We're going to take of the Lord's table right now. And the bread symbolizes the very physical body of Jesus, broken, lost for you. Where he said, my life for yours. This is my body, broken for you. And as often as you remember it, as you take it, do it in remembrance of me, of my care for you. It's very physical. As we see him in the garden under great distress, under great anxiety, Jesus is praying in the garden under an anxiety and a stress like you've never experienced at your workplace, like you've never experienced in your marriage, like you've never experienced in your neighborhood. He's in the garden sweating drops of blood he's so distressed. He told his friends, pray with me, watch with me. I'm under exceeding distress. For a man who tends to struggle with depression, that's great news. Why? So that you can have soul rest. And you don't have to live under anxiety and stress of whether or not you're accepted by God. He says, come to me. I want you to come to me. My yoke is easy. And when we come to him, we then take his yoke upon him. Now, what does that look like? On the road to the cross, as Jesus is walking the Via Dolorosa, he falls down. The ox, the older ox, falls. He falls down, and one Roman soldier looks at the crowd, and he says, Hey, you, come here. This man, he keeps, fall, he keeps stumbling, keeps falling. And a man by the name of Simon the Cyrene is called from the crowd to pick up the end of the cross. And when you look at paintings of this, it's beautiful because Jesus is carrying the heavy part of the wood, the yoke that was fit for him before the foundation of the world. And Simon is called into the work of Jesus, the mission of God. He's also carrying the cross, but his God has the heavy end and he's learning the rhythms of what it means to have a life under the cross, under the yoke. 
Paul the Apostle later writes a letter and he says to the church there, he says, he gives some instruction. He says, and by the way, Simon's daughters are there. You know Simon, Simon the Cyrene. It tells us that Simon not only became a follower of Jesus, was changed by Jesus as he entered into the mission of Jesus, but that he then discipled his daughters in the whole work too. He brought his family to see the beauty of following Jesus under his yoke. Friends, you have to tell that story to your heart over and over again. That the way to relieve our anxieties and our failures and a rebellion against Christ and that we've taken up other yokes too burdensome, too wearisome for our soul is to repent and to take his yoke, to follow him to the cross. That the way up is down. The way to win is through loss. Will you fall? Probably. Will you stumble? Will you become anxious again? Probably before the end of the night. But Jesus is there saying again and again, keep coming to me. Come to me again. Come. Take my yoke. Remember my way? It's the way of the cross. And then he says, lastly, learn of me. Now to learn of Jesus, what does that mean? It's the same word that's used for a disciple. What does a disciple mean? It means a learner. And it simply means this. If we come to Jesus and we begin to learn of him, what would your city look like as you learn a new way to relate to your partner? What would your neighborhood look like as you learn to relate to your spouse in a different way, to your sexuality in the way that God's created you, to your job the way that God's created you, to no, no longer be the ubermensch, the top dog, the superhuman, but now to be able to say, I follow Jesus in his yoke. He gives me rest for my soul, my weary soul. Is it the magic bullet? Nope. Will you need to come again? Probably before the end of the night. But he's still there with the invitation. Remember, the invitation says a lot about an individual. And what he says is, come to me. Who can come? Not the moralist. Who says, I know it all. The one who, the one who says, I need you. I'm burdened and weary. All of us will take a yoke. Jesus says, my yoke gives you rest it then becomes the pattern for our lives. The way of our rhythm of life is supposed to run. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, these words are far too complex for um, us to just put it into a pragmatic, easy step approach. And I wish I could do that, but I can't because it's not possible. It's simply found by coming to you. And so right now, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, we pray as we respond in worship that you would meet us here. We come to you with all of our brokenness, all of our weariness, all of our anxiety, all of our worry, all of our false yokes, and we give them to you and we say, I take, my, I take your yoke on me.